and and he was uh, the Zen master Yun Men was was um, often spoken about as one of the most eloquent of, of Zen masters, especially in terms of how concise he was with his his expressions of the teaching. And one day, this is always the story of Zen, right? A monk comes to ask the Zen master. <laughs> <laughs> so the kind of the, the plot isn't too, you know, dramatic of ups and downs. It's usually just a question. So it's the same kind of theme. And the monk asks, what are the teachings of a whole lifetime? And Yunmen said, an appropriate response. So I want to talk tonight about this path and this practice simply being just that, just learning what it is to make an appropriate response in this challenging world, so complex and troubled yet beautiful. How do we do this and, and how is this our spiritual practice? And I, th I think I shared this in the closing circle in our weekend retreat. And it feels poignant to me in the, the poignancy is because Saturday night, so leading the retreat on Saturday and then Saturday night, I go home and um, actually there's some people staying at our house. And then in the evening, I do that thing called checking my email. Oh. I know. <laughs> Thank you for your sympathy. <laughs> and it was just that one email. I I am. Um, currently uh, helping an organization. They, they asked me to help them with um, just some things going on and, and uh, a conflict has reemerged that is deeply entrenched in this community and it's going on for actually decades. And I thought, oh, you know, I could probably help out a little bit. It was like the stupidest <laughs> thing I ever thought I'd do. <laughs> so here I am in the middle of it and the email was in around that. I was putting out a response, uh, you know, to, to kind of help the organization and just got slammed in a way that was also so public. There's like, there's like 25 of my colleagues, usually my senior colleagues on this email. And it left me with a sense, and, and the email left me with a sense is, is, what's the appropriate response? Because when I thought about the decision about how to respond, it was like, well, if I said this, I will damned if I do and damned if I don't. If I don't say anything, it's going to be bad. If I do say something, no matter what I say, it's going to be bad. You ever have been in one of those situations before? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it's, it left me with this question of how, how do I make or how do we make skillful decisions? And in particular, just the feeling, the, 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 uh, the, con the internal conflict is really what I, I'm, I'm so curious about around this decision-making process. And what I want to point out about this question and also about that, you know, that, that internal conflict that you might be able to relate to that I'm describing is how it really is the heart, I would say, of the spiritual path. It's, it's where my challenges are that my spiritual path really opens up, that becomes the connection. For example, the uh, French philosopher and political activist uh, Simone Weil uh, would often talk about in her, her kind of spiritual journey, she'd use this phrase that the separation is the link. And of course, she was coming more from a Judeo-Christian perspective and how so much of her life she felt so separated from the divine. 
and the image she gave to really explain that it was the separation that actually linked her to the divine. It was a separation that actually linked her to her spiritual path. And she gave the image of two prisoners that are in separate prison cells and they're, they're separated by this wall. So they're separated. But when they start to knock on it, that separation, the, thing that sepa the very thing that separates them connects them. It becomes the medium of the connection. And I think in the same way, challenges I find when I can say yes to them can be that medium to connect me to my spiritual practice. That's, that's my, uh, my hope for all of us is that, that somehow we can move forward in that way with maybe the dilemmas. Maybe you have a similar dilemma in your life or maybe it's not a dilemma, but just you have some challenging decision that is plaguing you, you know, around a relationship or a situ situation. And the, and the options, none of them look great. And there is a, a push and a pull inside of you. And you, you, it's so difficult to actually decide. And this is really what I'm speaking about is the experience of what I'm going to call ambivalence. You know, feeling ambivalent where, where I, I'm faced with a decision, but I'm being pulled in so many different ways. I'm ambivalent about which one really fits. And just to, to begin with a kind of a definition of a, a ambivalence, so we're on the same page as, uh, this is a, I appreciate this, this uh, definition. Ambivalence being the coexistence within an, within an individual of positive and negative feelings towards the same person or the same situation or object or a action, which simultaneously draws that individual into conflicting directions. So kind of like what happened to me with that, uh, that email, just being, feeling like I'm being pulled in conflicting directions. Should I say this or this? And it could even be the opposite things. And I feel that pull on that tear. And it's difficult to decide what to do in such a situation. So they can be big like that, or they could be really small too. Like for example, just before coming over here, I was speaking with a, a colleague. We, we had this long conversation at the end. We were just sharing what we're going to be doing this evening. He, he's also a Dharma teacher, so he's teaching tonight. As, uh, some of you know Gil Fronsdale, he's, he's in California. And we're sharing what we're going to be talking about. And I, shared that I was going to be teaching on ambivalence. And he's like, oh, I'm just going to do Q&A. And then it was so interesting. Five minutes after that, I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't do the talk on ambivalence. Maybe I should, maybe I should do Q&A. Like, well, I don't know. Like, what's, what's really the best thing? I feel pulled. I feel torn. It's like, oh, wow. Is it, it seems like it can be a, a pretty common visitor in terms of that those conflicting directions that pull us in, in, in so many different ways. You know, at, at the extreme, you can't get yourself to say yes and you're afraid to say no. Or you can't get yourself to say no and you're afraid to say yes. So how can we bring these experiences of ambivalence into and fold them into our spiritual practice? How can you navigate the tough decisions that are inevitable for our human lives?
And one tool that I really mostly want to talk about this, this one tool is really the heart of our meditation practice. And again, I, I want to, for those of you who are on retreat, to use again a, a similar theme that I was using this, this retreat is just uh, coming back to these two qualities that we find within meditation, the, the willingness to be present or the willingness to be aware, and at the same time, the willingness to accept how experience is in that moment. And then um, bringing that to, to our experiences. So I want to uh, kind of uh, parse this apart and, and explain a little bit about bringing the willingness to be aware and the willingness to accept about around ambivalence and how it can be uh, possibly helpful. Being aware of it, I find it so helpful with something like ambivalence, just to, be, just to be able to name, oh, ambivalence is here. Oh, there's an indecisive quality that's visiting me right now. Here it is. It's arising. Voila. And naming it sometimes just gives a little bit of space around it. And I'll come back to the awareness piece, but I, but I want to, uh, with just that, that initial sense of what it is to be aware, to say a bit more about just the power of accepting it. Because what I find, especially around, for example, this conflict that I'm in the midst of, with, with being aware of it and then accepting it, especially accepting it in the sense of self-compassion of, wow, this is really tough right now. And just the softening of self-compassion of, this is a difficult situation for me because I can't decide. And then my heart softens, which is so much a part of the acceptance rather than, I shouldn't be feeling this. Well, actually, I am feeling this. <laughs> and can I uh, have a sense of softness around me rather than, than judgment? Because then it normalizes the experience of ambivalence. I don't have to beat myself up about it. It's completely natural to have a huge range of of feelings, even conflicting feelings, around a situation or a relationship, and maybe even completely opposite feelings. And I find that important for me to learn how to accept, because sometimes there are situations I find myself in that I'm conditioned where it feels like I can't have all those feelings. You know, just a couple examples of this. For example, the the experience of uh, the birth of a child. When we hear about the birth of the child, often what the valence is is that we should be feeling joy and delight. And it is. It's a joy, joyful and delightful thing. That's, that's an aspect of, of a new being coming into the world. But that's not the only aspect of the birth of a child. It, it can be incredibly exhausting. There's a huge loss of freedom that happens. There can be all kinds of stress that happens around that experience. And sometimes it's, it, it feels more acceptable to, to express the joy and delight, but not the frustrations and the resentments and the challenges that are there. So hopefully you can hear just with, the, just with naming ambivalence, it allows me to open up and acknowledge that there might be a whole range of, of emotions around an experience, rather than simply the emotions or feelings that are supposed to be there. The same thing around the passing away of someone. There's the, 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 the deep sense of grief and loss and sadness 
that comes with that. But also, and probably some of you have experienced this, I know I've experienced this, is sometimes, especially if there's been a lot of caregiving, it can be a lot, there can be a lot of relief. There can be a, a, a huge weight that's lifted. But again, sometimes that's the piece that is more difficult to really to own and express in terms of kind of the stories that we're allowed to tell around the, the passing of someone. You know? So really around anything to the subtle, to the, the extremes like this, to the subtle things. And it could be this talk. It could be like, oh, this is kind of good. It's kind of helpful. I don't really feel ambivalence. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's good. <laughs> so there it is. You know, maybe right now, a little ambivalence. <laughs> a little ambivalent about being here. And then through this, hopefully you're hearing how it, it takes me to a deeper level of this spiritual practice as, as I begin to see the fluid nature of experience and how complex it is, how it can be filled with this, this, this huge range of feeling and emotion. And actually how these feelings come and go, they arise and pass away. At times I might feel the joy and delight, or I might the next moment feeling the frustration. And that that's what it is to be a human being rather than a human being with one feeling about one thing. And so when I accept ambivalence, it, it, it opens me up. It gives me more understanding of what it is to be a human being. And sometimes when I slow down with like the experience of ambivalence, when I'm feeling torn, uh, you might also start to feel the positive aspect of it. For example, there was one study done to show that the uh, leaders and managers that have um, a certain amount of ambivalence, maybe not debilitating ambivalence, a certain amount of ambivalence can be really helpful. Because often I feel ambivalent, or you might feel this, because a, a situation is so complex. There's a, there's a feeling that we need more information, that we need to hear more voices, that we need to think more carefully about it. And often what the worst thing is, is to be very decisive very quickly. That that phase of ambivalence is so important because it allows for a reflection. And when I can be with that tension, then a lot of times a better decision is going to come, come forward. And again, this is, again, there can be a kind of conditioning around this, especially the, the, when, when uh, sometimes the the qualities that people talk about that they think a good leader should have, one of them is that they're very decisive. But that can be incredibly problematic. We don't have to get into that. <laughs> so this positive aspect, possibly, of ambivalence. And yet, I also want to talk about, um, to make sure to really touch upon how debilitating uh, ambivalence can be. And maybe you've felt that when that feeling of stuckness where there is a decision you have to make and you just can't. And, and it, it, it's so difficult to move forward in some kind of way. And a kind of passivity starts to creep in, a stuckness. And I, I feel that this is where the awareness aspect can be so crucial when it, when it feels like it's paralyzing in some manner. 
And in particular, I don't stop at just the word ambivalence, but I start to sense into the feeling quality of that, what's fueling that. And often what's fueling that is a kind of reactivity, some kind of obsessive wanting or obsessive not wanting or just a deep confusion. For example, sometimes I know I can relate to many of these examples of wanting my life to be perfect and therefore I want to make the perfect decision. And then I can't because neither way to go or the, all the options aren't giving me the perfect decision. Or wanting, again, wanting some kind of guarantee that the decision I make is the right decision. Which also can really be a hook. Or the clinging to all the possible options. Sometimes I've noticed that what makes a de decision so difficult is not because there's so many uh, bad consequences, but there's so many good consequences from all the, all the different ways I could go. And it's difficult to, to figure out which one is best because they all sound so good. And that can be equally painful. Maybe you've experienced that before, where it's not that something bad is happening. It's like there's all these good things happening. And then there can be a clinging to not wanting to decide because you, you want to keep all the options on the table because they, they feel so good. Or it might be on the other spectrum of not wanting. Oh, I don't want to take the risk that this is calling on me to take. Or I'm not wanting to endure the challenge that uh, needs to come for me to make this hard decision that's going to come after this hard decision. And then it can just be just confusion, not even being clear about what direction to go in whatsoever, not being really clear about the decisions that are going to lead to my contentment and well-being and the decisions that won't. And often what I find underneath this wanting and not wanting and even the confusion is I'm afraid. I'm afraid of uncertainty because often with decisions, that's what I'm confronted with is I actually live in an uncertain world, but I want to believe that I can live in a, in a certain world. And that's such the problem. That's such the conflict that this spiritual practice is about is starting to allow my system to digest that this world is groundless and it's uncertain. And given that that's the fact, how do I have an appropriate response? And what do I do with all this just in terms of, of this practice of awareness and acceptance? I'm just noticing that. I'm just starting to notice these different feeling qualities, the wanting, the not wanting, the confusion. So there's at least clarity about what's going on. Because I find if, if I can be clear about what's going on inside me, I'm more informed about whatever the next step needs to, to happen around this ambivalence. And this is... I can see sometimes the big problem for me is I, I have a certain feeling like ambivalence and instead of feeling into it, I just want the answer to know what to do with it rather than to actually take the time to feel into it and to understand it. I want to rush through it because it feels so uncomfortable and so challenging. So just that step of the willingness to be aware, the willingness to accept something different can open. But it's difficult to have faith and trust in that 
especially if your mind is like mine, because there can be such a habit of trying to fix it or figure it out or have the answer rather than to take a step back and to simply feel and notice and accept. And I want to point out uh, what I've noticed for myself when I slow down with things. Uh, what arises from this is not necessarily making the quote-unquote right decision, but rather more of a willingness to make a decision and to take that risk of making a decision. Because often that's what's, what's hindering me is I want the right decision and, and I have to come to realize I need to take the risk just to make a decision because I don't know how it's going to turn out. And I'll come back to that. This is really quite important. Because one of the things I have to acknowledge to myself is the way I learn how to make good decisions. Do you know how I make good, good decisions? You already know. Yeah. A lot of bad decisions. <laughs> I so wish it was different. I mean, if there's a different world to live in other than that one, I'll, I'll pay the ticket to get there. Just, just let me know where I need to fly to. It just doesn't work that way. And, and I want to forget that. I want to forget that the, that's what, where my learning comes from, is I need to struggle through decisions. And then I learn from them. And I hope that I don't get too hurt and too banged up. It's quite important. And then there are some other aspects around ambivalence and navigating tough decisions that I, I, I find helpful to keep in mind that are situated on top of this, this willingness to be aware and this willingness to accept. For me, in my life, this is the foundation. This is, this is what, what I begin with, is this practice. And then I allow other things to be situated on top of that. Because to me, it, it feels so fundamental to touch my experience. And of course, there's a place for wise reflection. You know, the, to see if I can have a, a broad perspective on what's going on. So, so the Pali phrase for wise reflection is yoniso manisikara. And Joanna Macy describes this uh, uh, Buddhist teacher about this quality of this, this Pali phrase, Pali being the early scriptural language of Buddhism, that, that it, it, it implies this, this, um, this the sensitivity to the web of interdependence within which a decision is being made. And when I hear that, it's like, oh, can I take in all the different aspects of a decision, thinking about the best scenarios and the worst scenarios and brainstorming, even the crazy ideas. And then the another aspect of the spiritual path, which I, I just lightly referred to last week, uh, which I, I really want to point out is such a, a so part and parcel of the, the spiritual path, which is uh, spiritual friendship, good friends. For example, the, it's interesting how much the Buddha emphasized spiritual friendship. For example, Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, came up to, to Buddha and said, you know, I've been having this conversation with this other monastic and we're trying to figure out, is, is spiritual friendship half the holy life or maybe a quarter of the holy life? 
and the and the Buddha said, no, no, no. Spiritual friendship is the entirety of the of, of the spiritual life. Really emphasizing the importance of community. Because I do find it so helpful. Like, for example, last night I I called up a, a, a actually a dear old friend of mine who I know has he's just gone through so many intense conflicts. So I thought, oh, he'd be a good person to ask about this. These are, it's, it's nice to have good friends who have been through a lot. It was so helpful. It was fantastic. It was great <laughs> to have more than just my mind on a situation. When, my, when it's only my mind on a situation, it's, just, it's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Always what I find, having some kind of collaborative process I find so rich. And that, that, that is my spiritual practice. Because often that can be seen as, oh, there's a weakness there. I should be able to figure this out on my own. What, what, a, what a silly idea. <laughs> and if I can rely on others, what, what a wonderful thing. <clears throat> and then maybe most important, when I make a decision, I check in most importantly with my intention behind whatever direction I go in. The Dalai Lama once uh, spoke about this. He was just kind of speaking about how people see him in his predicament. He was, he once said, you know, some people call me a living Buddha, you know, this, this embodiment. And actually, supposedly the Dalai Lama in Tibetan tradition, he's the embodiment of Avalokiteshvara, of, of, of of um, uh, Chenreza, Kuan, Kuan Yin, this, this embodiment of this, this deity in, uh, uh, representing compassion. And he said, you know, other people think I'm a god king. And then he said, you know, I'm just a simple Buddhist monk. And others, they call me a wolf in monk's clothing. And I apologize for the reference. I'm all, all for wolf reintroduction, so I don't want to. The bad stories about wolves, they're really important for the environment, in my opinion. Um, but it's true, you know, in, in China, there's actually a great book that just came out by John Powers about uh, pro uh, Chinese propaganda. And, you know, we don't hear that propaganda, but, you know, a common propaganda that, that many people believe is, the, the Dalai Lama is the head of a terrorist organization that, have, that is carrying out plots. And this is just a normal understanding that is uh, put out there. It's, it's, it's actually a, an interesting book about uh, the, the propaganda out there. So he's, he's seen in all these different lights. And talk about having to say something or make a decision and feeling like damned if you do or damned if you don't. This is a great example of this. Whatever comes out of his, his mouth so often gets spun in so many different directions. And he says, but all of that doesn't matter. He says, all I do is I look back at my own intention, and if my intention is sincere, then that is what is important. I find this, that there's so much clarity within that understanding. How do I move forward with my decisions? 
What's the intention there? Is it coming from fear and anger? Is it coming from compassion? Being clear about that. And then whatever happens, happens. I have so little control over how my life is going to unfold. I have some influence about it to make a decision and then to be okay with how it unfolds, to have that steadiness, to cultivate that steadiness, that equanimity, to be clear in my heart and then people will do what they do. And, and I want to point out, you know, even when you look at the, the life of the Buddha, this, this, so, you know, the, the story is this fully awakened person. It, so often this was the case for him, is that he's leaving the, living this wholesome life with these good intentions and all kinds of things happen to him. You know, his, his cousin tried to murder him. You know, there were a number of, uh, of practitioners from different religious sects that were always criticizing him. The, the Vinaya, which is the rule, rules of monks, is, is one story after another about some blunder that some monk is doing that the, that the Buddha then had to make a de decision about, to make a rule about. A lot of trouble. His, his entire clan actually was massacred by, a, by a, um, a king that he was right on the edge of his, of his, uh, uh, his township when this happened. I can't control the world, but I can be clear about my intention. And can I remember that from the smallest decisions to the big decisions that I make? And I gain this clarity through this practice of, can I start to touch into these experiences to be aware of what's fueling my decisions, to touch into the ambivalence as well? Okay, so what we'll do now is uh, come back to this one point I was making, just to, to practice this, this important piece of what I was sharing with you, this practice of being aware of what's going on and accepting. So, so now what I invite you to do is just to maybe take a, a minute or two to stretch your legs and move around before we begin to sit in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.